Uh, let me ask all of you a question. When calling or texting someone in the morning, what's an appropriate time? I mean, I, I genuinely would like to know. What is your opinion? When calling or texting in the morning, what is an appropriate time? What's too, what, what time is not too early to call or text? 9, 10 a.m.? Wait, what? what, what 9? Okay, anybody say, say earlier than 9. So everybody here says 9 a.m. Is, is at least in our opinion the definitive hour by which you are now at liberty to call or text. Is that true? Okay, we're not talking about your antisocialness. We're talking about when is it okay. Oh, I saw somebody shaking his head. Wait, oh, so what time? Lunch. Ooh, okay. All right, wow. Okay, so don't call, don't call or text that man too early, apparently. Not before his, uh, his lunch. For my family, uh, there's only one day out of the entire week that really, we really have a chance to like sleep in. Uh, that's Saturday. And so we take our time waking up on Saturdays. Uh, we linger. I don't know about you guys, how you do on any day that you can sleep in. But for us on Saturday, we linger into the morning and try to really enjoy it. But yesterday morning, while I was still sleeping, someone called. It was 7.30 in the morning. I mean, I wasn't really sleeping. I was up, or I was awake, but I hadn't yet decided whether I wanted to start my day so my eyes were still closed. But the phone began to ring, and so I'm still groggy as I'm looking to find my phone. And while I'm looking for my phone, my first immediate thought was, who in the heck is calling me at this hour? And then after looking at my caller ID, my second thought was, well, this is definitely somebody I like a lot less. You know, one of the more unwelcomed things that you can do is to reach out to people when it's too early in the morning. Agreed? It's one of the more unwelcomed things. And worse yet is if you come to their door uninvited too early in the morning. I mean, imagine if blowing up your phone is not welcome, then how much having someone show up on your doorstep at an early hour like that would be welcome. I mean, straight up, like, there better be some, somebody's house better be on fire, some kind of emergency better be on, right? That's exactly what the Jewish high priests are doing in our passage. After inter interrogating Jesus, they proceed to march over to the residence of the Roman governor, Pilate. And as we see in our passage, it was early in the morning, probably about daybreak just as the sun was starting to rise. It's here that we pick up with our passage, John chapter 18, verse 28. If you'll follow along. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. There were traditions that forbid Jewish people from engaging with unclean Gentiles unless they had already gone through the purificational process. And so they didn't want to intermingle and mix. So they don't personally go in to the, see the governor, Pilate. So Pilate went outside to them and said to them, What accusation do you bring against this man? 
And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what, by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus has just endured two interrogations by the Jewish high priests. From Annas and from Caiaphas. After seeing Caiaphas, now Caiaphas sends Jesus on over to see Pilate. So Jesus has already been interrogated twice. So now he comes to Pilate after these two interrogations. And he's about to endure another round of interrogation. This time from the Roman governor Pilate. As with any interrogation, the point of any interrogation is to extract information from the one that's being questioned, right? And certainly, that's what Annas, Caiaphas, and Pilate are trying to do. Extract information. They barrage Jesus with questions. But this is the basis or point upon which I want to frame a question. What is it that's revealed in questioning God? As all of these people are questioning Jesus, interrogating Jesus, the question that I'd like to pose for us to examine today is, what is it that's revealed in questioning God? As we look into our passage, we'll find and see that what is revealed is truths about the questioner. Truths about the questioner. Jesus is brought before Pilate, and the reason becomes evident when Pilate says, what reason did you bring him? Why don't you judge him by your own laws? And they say, well, we don't have the authority under Roman law to put anyone to death. To put Jesus to death is their aim and their goal. And so, yes, Jesus is now questioned by Pilate. There are things about Jesus that are revealed in the interrogations. But in actuality, it's truths about the interrogators that are really being revealed through the questioning. We look at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? This exchange. 
between Pilate and Jesus. The entire time, Pilate is questioning Jesus. No doubt he's thinking that this is Jesus' chance to answer for himself. After all, Jesus has to prove himself to Pilate if he's going to get himself out of this mess, right? That's the point. So no doubt that's what Pilate is thinking. Hey, this is your chance for you to explain yourself to me because I have power over you to condemn you or to release you. As Jesus is questioned, what truths are revealed about Pilate? What we find is framed in Pilate's kind of almost mocking response back to Jesus when Jesus says everyone who hears the truth who knows the truth, who listens to the truth, hears my voice, and Pilate says, what is truth? What's revealed about Pilate is Pilate doesn't know truth. He doesn't know truth. What becomes evident is the truth that Jesus is talking about is the truth about himself, that he is the truth. Pilate says, what is truth? And he therefore demonstrates the fact that he doesn't know God. That's, in his snarky response, that's what is revealed about Pilate. In his questioning and interrogating of Jesus, what's revealed is he doesn't know God. He doesn't know big truth. Truth. How many of you guys would agree with this statement? The children of are the future. Let me just see a show of hands. The children are the future. Okay. If you think about it, that is true. Objectively. Literally, every generation of children are the future. Right? Because as they age, they become the adults. The world and society we live in is shaped by each successive generation. Right? So the statement, the children are our future, is, is truth. Would you agree? Right? That is a factual statement. And yet, if I look at how children are treated from society to society, culture to culture, I see different levels of buy-in to that truth. I think you can always tell what a culture is like and some of its values by how they treat the most vulnerable in their society. I don't think that children are necessarily as highly valued given the fact that children are the future as they should be. What I mean is children impact every generation, all people. You know, you need to, even on an economic standpoint, you need to have kids who are born, who are healthy, who grow up, who are well-educated, who can be effective in an economy, right? Because why? They buy and sell things. They produce things. They are taxed. They pay into that tax base. And as the generations ahead of them age, They are the ones who pay into the kinds of different kinds of entitlements like social security and other things that enable people who are older to live. If you don't have a pension and you don't have massive retirement, people are counting 
on those funds. And yet, there are so many people who really act as if kids don't matter unless it's their own kids. There's a saying, it takes a village to what? Correct. It takes a village to raise a child. It actually does. I look at how hard it is to parent even one kid when you have both parents. It is intensely hard. And sometimes you think you're going to go nuts. And you realize how big a deal it is to have a support system, a community, a quote-unquote village. Whether this is your own immediate family to your friends and other loved ones, your church community, right? It takes a village. When I look at the foster care system, I see a lot of kids who are abandoned. When I look at how people try to protect their own children at all costs, even when it is unjust and harmful to others, other kids, it's a heartbreaking thing to realize that for such a truth that there are people who don't think that it applies to them. I think this is the reality with a lot of things. You see, truth, there are small t truths. What are small t truths? Small t truths are truths that we would say are truths of our own experience. And what I mean is, you know, we all have hardship in life, right? Your hardship is different than mine. On the outside, we might look at one person's hardship and say, that person's hardship is much greater than this person's hardship. Right? We might say that. But the person who's enduring the hardship for them, that hardship is as hard as they've ever encountered, and it is crushing them. How many of you guys have ever endured hardship that you thought was just killing you, but other people thought it was not that big a deal? But for you, it is absolutely true that that hardship was something you were suffering a great deal in. So those are small t-truths. It's true as it relates to your experience. But then as we move up the ladder, there are bigger truths, truths that are applied to more and more people. So there are some truths that we you know, could say are relevant in families. There are certain truths that exist in families that might not necessarily apply uh, you know, in other contexts. In cultures, in certain communities and cultures, that there are certain truths that we apply in that context, right? In some cultures, you know, the individual is the most important thing. The individual's freedom and liberty is the most important thing. And that is not to be infringed on whatsoever. The bigger truth in some other cultures is that, you know, the collective harmony or the collective well-being is more important than the individual well-being or happiness of just the one. Right? We move up the ladder. There are different kinds of truths. The more and more we move up that ladder, it means that those truths apply to more and more people. Until we arrive at truths that are what we call absolute truths. So we move from small truths and we move up and then we can talk about like, you know, truths that are factual from the observable world, right? In nature, in existence. It keeps going up the ladder until you arrive at the absolute truth. What is absolute truth? Jesus himself answers that when he says, 
Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What Jesus' life and ministry has been revealing consistently and constantly is the truth. What is the truth? It's God himself. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. God revealed to the world so that the world could look at Jesus and say, now I have seen the Father. Now I know God. Absolute truth. And if you consider that every other truth, fundamental truth, flows from God, then it is absolutely accurate when we say God is the absolute truth. Amen? God is the absolute truth. What's interesting here is this. As Pilate is questioning and interrogating Jesus, you'll notice that Pilate does something that we often do as human beings. Pilate's response is to say, am I a Jew? Am I a Jew? Truth of the matter is, Pilate is stating a very obvious truth. Pilate isn't a Jew. But we're not talking about in terms of physical makeup and blood. Pilate is not a Jew spiritually. We read later in, the, uh, in, in Scripture, in Paul's letters, he talks about what it means to be a Jew. And he says, to be a true Israelite, a Jew, is not by blood or birth physically. It is by spiritual birth. It is by spiritual identity that is found only in Christ. So when Pilate says, am I a Jew? He's saying, what do you matter to me? You don't impact me whatsoever. Because I'm not a Jew. And in that statement, so much is revealed in his interrogating of Jesus. Pilate doesn't know God. Even though God knows him, and even though the mission for which Jesus has come completely applies to him, he doesn't see it. As a result of that, Pilate's decision that we see in the last part of our passage The decision that he makes demonstrates that he doesn't know the truth. In verse 38, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Consider that statement. Pilate goes back out in front of the Jewish authorities and he says, I find no guilt in him. If that's the case, then what should occur? Pilate should let him go. But that's not what he does. Verse 39. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Verse 40. They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. He gives them a choice. Now maybe in Pilate's mind he's thinking, well, the choice is obvious. Between the robber and Jesus, the king of the Jews, certainly they're going to pick Jesus. Maybe he's thinking that he's doing the politically savvy move, but he doesn't account for the fact that these people are corrupted in their minds and in their hearts. So what do they do? They pick the robber. Speaking of which, by the way, the choice between the two is very telling because Jesus also refers to himself as what? The good shepherd. Do you recall? The good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And then as he's describing that he is the good shepherd and he's describing the sheep, he says that robbers will come to try to steal you away. 
to steal my sheep away. It's interesting in, in the end, the choice that is being given to the people is between God himself and the robber. And they pick the robber. Pilate in all of this maybe thought he was doing the best that he could. He was being pragmatic. He was being efficient. He was being savvy and politically minded as he was doing this. And certainly he was. But if he had known the truth, then he wouldn't have tried to do this method of somehow getting out of the situation. So they pick Barabbas. Everyone, as we look at Annas, Caiaphas, and Pilate, questions God. But we also question God. How many of you have questioned God in your life? My conclusion is everyone. Everyone has questions of God. Whether they know it or not. For some, their questions are offered up as prayer. And for others, their questions are the questions that they ask in their own minds. It's that inner monologue. But whether people know it or not, they are directing these questions to God. Demanding that God answer. As we think about our lives, as we think about our engagement with God, we are also questioning God. Whether we consciously know it or not. Even when, you know, you're not necessarily praying, that is often the case. How many of us have, in moments of struggle, thought, God, why? Were you actively engaged in prayer at the moment? Probably not. But these questions are lifted up to him nonetheless. So the question that we ask, the questions that we offer up to God are very telling. Even as Pilate's questions offer up an insight into truths about him, so our questions offer up insight about truths to us. So as you question God, what truths are revealed about you? When you pray, what are the things that you ask of God reveal to you about you? You know, it, it is something that I think is noteworthy. Is that whenever somebody is in the driver's seat of asking questions, we think that it's the other person who is answering for themselves, right? Every guy has gone through this who has ever uh, dated a girl and met the parents, especially the dad or the older brother or sometimes even the younger brother, go there and say hello and sit down and they have a thousand questions, right? And maybe they're thinking, you need to answer all these questions in order for you to justify yourself to us, to prove that you're up to it. But you know what I found? Is that often is the case. The very questions that the person asks are, is very revealing about who they are. They reveal so much about themselves without realizing that they're doing it. Does that make sense? When we pray... When we turn to God, even in our own minds, and we question God, those questions say a lot about where we are, truths about ourselves, even when we didn't recognize it. Often what we do is we examine life, and we examine maybe what God is doing when we ask these questions, right? How many of us do we ask, what do our questions mean? Examine the very questions that we offer. At some point, you've been asked, hey, what kind of, what, what's your type? What kind of person are you looking for? What kind of person do you want to marry? How many of you guys have been asked that question? 
Yeah, I think everybody has. From even when you're young, that's one of the favorite things of, of, you know, girls and boys to do, to ask each other that question. And then as you get older, that question, you know, gets more and more serious. How many of you guys, therefore, given the fact that you've been asked that question probably more times than you can count, have an answer to that question? Raise your hand. What kind of person are you looking for? You know, I mean, if you're married, then don't raise your hand. You know, you already found, right? (laughs) Okay. But if you're still single, how many of you guys know how you answer that question? Raise your hand. How many of you guys don't know how to answer that question? Yeah, my conclusion is this, is that everybody knows how to answer that question for themselves. You know. If you've been asked that question that many times, and you've asked it to people, then sure as heck you know what the answer is. And you know why? Because you've spent a lot of time thinking about what kind of person do I want to be with? What kind of person would I like to spend the rest of my life with? True? Come on, right? We know. Sometimes we don't want to be honest about what those answers are. But we know. You know what I found that people don't know the answer to question as much and as well? Is what kind of person would you like to be for that person? What kind of person do you need to be for that person? I find people have a hard time answering that. Because for as much time as they thought about what kind of person they want, they never really think about what kind of person they need to be for somebody else's need. A lot is revealed. When we question God, it's okay to question God. What I'm saying is, as we question God, we need to examine the very content of our questions because it reveals truths about us that maybe we're not paying attention to. Truths about us that we're not thinking about. Why? Because our minds haven't been geared to think that way. Because if we do, if we examine the truths that are being revealed about us in the questions that we ask God, then certainly there should be opportunity for us to see the truth. See God for who He is. See ourselves in light of all of that. And see that truth cutting through every aspect of our lives. Because I'll tell you this. As people of God, as we continue to journey and walk with the Lord Jesus, the very kinds of questions we ask God should be developing. It should be growing and transforming over time. I think a lot of the questions that we offer grow and reflect a changing person, a person who is not the same as they were. If Pilate was really paying attention, when Jesus said what he said, he wouldn't have said, what is truth? He would have asked, Who is truth? And to that, he would have seen that what Jesus was saying is that he is the truth and Pilate would have been in a much different situation than where he found himself. Jesus is the truth. Amen? But what does that truth mean in terms of how we ask and question God? The insights that we see to ourselves are important because we can testify to the fact that Jesus is the truth. We can testify to the fact that Jesus is the life. We can testify to the fact that Jesus has come. He is God. He is king. And he has come to establish his kingdom forevermore. And it is not from this world or of this world, but it will transform this world indeed. We can testify and confess to all of that and say amen, but the truth of all of that needs to be seen as we reflect on how we interface with that truth. And we see it in the questions that we ask God.
I hope that you will take some time to reflect upon these very things in your prayer time, in the things that you say. And as a result of it, ask God to lead you to have insights about yourself, where you are, and truths about yourself that you haven't really seen before.